now listening to the Charity Church Podcast. I started out this year, and I think I probably shared this earlier in the year, on January the 1st, we were in Massachusetts with our daughter and son-in-law and granddaughter who were up there, and we went to church with them that morning. And while I was sitting there in the service, I was just started getting those weird body aches kind of stuff, you know, and I thought, well, I'm sleeping on a strange bed, and maybe it was just some of that. And as the morning progressed, it got worse and worse, and we got in the car to drive home, and I was just feeling terrible. I had started running a, a fever, and Tracy was blessing me and driving, and, and uh, come to find out, I got tested, and I had the flu, and it shut me down for a week, and I'm telling you, it was, it was rough, and me being a man, in the fall, I had gone to the doctor, and she had recommended that I get the flu shot, and I said, nah, I, I, I never get the flu, And even if I do, it's never a bad case, so no, I'll pass on that. While I was laying in bed and on the couch, body aches all week long, could not function, I was wishing I would have gotten the flu shot to make that thing just a little bit more bearable. And and the thing about it, that whole week, I didn't feel like talking to anybody. I didn't feel like leaving the house. I didn't feel like watching TV. All I wanted to do was lay around and do nothing but moan and complain and gripe and have Tracy wait on me hand and foot. And I was disappointed in that. I'm kidding. She's a great nurse. She takes care of me. But that's the way, you know, sickness does us, right? And we're talking about shame, and we're talking about winning the shame game. And the problem with so many of us is the shame game has defeated us, and it keeps us incapacitated. It keeps us at a place where we will not be used by God because we'd rather or we just default to living in the shame of our past. And we go through a long laundry list of things and what we continuously hear in our mind based upon things that we've done or based upon things that have done to us, we hear the words, we talked about this last week, shame on you. Shame on you. I cannot believe you behaved the way you behaved. I cannot believe you did what you did. I cannot believe you gave in to that temptation. I cannot believe you said those words and I cannot believe you sit here today and you live with that on your mind and on your heart. And we listen to these words, shame on you, shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourself. And it cripples us. It gets us to a place where we just cannot live with ourselves and no one else has an easy time living with us. Because here's what we define shame as. It's this all-consuming condition that we have let down ourselves, we've let down others, and we have let down God. These three, we've let down ourselves, others, and God. And we have this all-consuming thought process that we keep rehearsing it over and over and over in our minds. And it consumes us. And we're crippled by it. And we're unused or we're unusable because we allow shame to have that kind of an effect on us. What we determined last week is shame is not just an emotion you feel. What happens is it turns into an identity you begin to wear. And you start to look at yourself as I am a failure or I am unlovable or I am always at fault. It's always me. It's me. There's something wrong with me. 
And we take an identity of the shame that we carry. And as a result, we're hard to live with. We have a hard time loving other people. Other people may have a hard time loving us because we just carry this around with us so much. Because remember last week, we distinguished between two things. Guilt is I made a mistake, whereas shame is I am a mistake. And we take that identity of whatever it was. And if we were to, to process, because we're not all, we're, none of us are immune from sin, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all sin, whether you're saved or unsaved, we still deal with the, the, the human nature, we still deal with sin. And if we handled it correctly, we would have sin, because we're not gonna avoid that, we're gonna have it. You know, that's not an excuse, it's just part of who we are. And then it should cause us to feel guilty. If you're a child of God, that should come along with it. You feel guilty. And we should quickly turn to confession. We confess our sin to God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what happens is we go from sin to guilt and we slip into this cesspool of shame and we live there. We talked about this last week. This is kind of review. And what, what happens is it's almost unavoid, unavoidable to go into a little bit of shame. You know, you do something wrong and there's guilt and you slip into shame. I can remember when I was just a young boy and, and I was, we were going through the grocery store and I saw some Snoopy pencils that I thought were really neat and I needed to have one. And so I grabbed it, you know, off the, off the thing that was hanging there. I grabbed one, but I didn't grab just one. I grabbed one for my brother also. So I had two Snoopy pencils that I stuck in my pocket and stole those. I was being generous, you know? And so when I did that, you know, I got caught doing it. And even as a child, you know when you do something wrong, there's a, there's a feeling of guilt. And then there's that, that slip of, and you go into shame, especially when you've got to go back and confess and say, I, I, I did something wrong. And we, we carry that, that shame. But what we need to do is when we hit that shame, we need to quickly confess and move on. Confess it and move on and believe that God has forgiven us and that God can use us in spite of the sin, the guilt, the shame, and we confess it and we can just move on. But the problem we have is we get stuck right here. We get stuck right here. And there are many people in the church and outside the church who have lived in this place of shame for years and years and years and try so many different ways to cope with it. Try to cope with it by relationships. Try to cope with it by being an overachiever, by being a perfectionist. Try to, try to cope with it by um, other addictions and things that will mask the problem that we have. Because remember last week we talked about three types of shame. We talked about psychological shame. It's what we do to ourselves. We start to rehearse things and um, ruminate over things that we've done. That's the word that, that I think I messed it up last week. We ruminate over things in our minds and we... It's a psychological game that we play with ourselves. And we start to take on that identity. And then there's the social or the cultural level of shame. It's what other people think about me. Maybe some of that is what they have subjected me to, something that's happened to you, and you're carrying that kind of shame. So it's, there's this, this social expectation or that we've let down uh, the social circle that we live in. And then there's the sacred or the theological shame that we deal with. Whereas we have sinned against God or we've sinned against our church body. And so we carry that kind of shame. And all of these, if we don't deal with them correctly, they will keep us in the cesspool of the unusable place in life in shame. And what we tend to do is we tend to go from fame, the fame game, the lame game, to the blame game. The fame game is we, we want to paint this picture that everything's right. 
Everything is right with me. How, how are you doing? Oh, man, I am doing great. I am 100%. I am, there's, there's somebody out in the, the foyer on Sunday mornings. I'll just say, how you doing? Well, I'll just tell you, it's Dina. And she says, how you doing? And I'll go, I'm doing great. She said, are you really? And I go, well, I told her a couple of weeks, about 85% today, just to be honest with you. All right. Today I was like right there at 95, 100%. So feeling pretty good in here today. A lot of energy. You seem to be excited about being here. How's the balcony doing? All right, good. That place, that, that area up there is beginning to fill up. Y'all have a responsibility, fill up the balcony, okay? And so we kind of, we overcompensate sometimes with shame and things that we're feeling, and we play this fame game. Then we have this lame game. We try to cover it up, you know, and we try to, try to overcompensate in other ways by covering our sin like Adam and Eve did. They put the fig leaves on, you know, or, or we play the blame game. It's not my fault. It's everybody else's fault. And certainly there may be some of that, some things that you were subjected to that's caused shame. But we sit around and we blame other people. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. You know, and we just play that game. And what we've got to do, if we're going to have, if we're going to deal with the fame game, the lame game, and the blame game, we've got to, instead of having this fame, we've got to have this level of humility. We come to God and we go, God, I, have con- I-, I just confess to you, I have sinned against you. And, and we confess that to him. And we-, we have this humble spirit about us. Or we, we have this vulnerability toward other people that, listen, I can't cover it up. I'm not having a good day today, you know? And you just confess that to somebody. I've got some things in my past that I'm not, ash- that I'm not uh, proud of, and I'm ashamed of those things. And we get vulnerable with the right people in the right setting. We get some healing from that. And we take responsibility for even the things that we have done, the objective sins that we've committed. We go, yes, I own up to that. I sinned against God. I sinned against you. We take ownership of that. Even if it's something that's done to us, we've been subjected to, we even take responsibility for coming out of that and not living in that and understanding what God has done for us and the forgiveness that we find in him, the healing that we find in him. And so we cannot live in this shame. We've got to come out of it because what happens if we stay here too long is shame will begin to extinguish your usability. Shame will do that to you. And, and, you know, everybody around you recognizes it. You recognize it in yourself. And so you just feel like you're unusable by God. And we go on mission trips, you know, around here a lot. And I've heard so many people, I'll even go to them and say, hey, you ought to go to Tanzania with me. You ought to just go over there. You're, you're going to love it over there. You're going to experience worship like you won't experience in this culture. And it's just neat to see that, see what God is doing over there. And people will come back to me and they'll go, you know, I just, I can't, you don't, you don't understand. God, God can't use me. I go, why? Oh, man, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know things I've got going on in my, in my life. I'm thinking, you're letting shame extinguish your usability. And God wants to use you in spite of that. And when we start to look through Scripture, we see example after example after example of it. And I can just start going down the line. There was a guy in the Old Testament named David. You ever heard of David? King David? David was the, the guy who was anointed to be king at a very, very young age, waited on his turn, and when he became king, guess what he did? He had an affair with another man's wife. And when he was about to be found out, he had the, 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 man, the wife's husband killed on the front lines of battle. David thought he had all of his shame and all of his guilt covered up. And all of a sudden, the prophet... Nathan comes to him, tells him a story 
about a man who steals another man's sheep. David was infuriated by it. He said, bring the man in, we'll have him put to death. And Nathan looked at him and says, David, you are that man. And David in that moment felt what a lot of us feel, he felt guilt. And I'm certain there was some shame. But if you read Psalm 51, you will see what David did with his guilt and his shame. He confessed it, not just openly before Nathan. He confessed it openly before all of us because Psalm 51 is his confession. And so David did what was right. And we would look at that and go, man, he could have lived in shame his entire, uh, while he had his rule going on. And, And even after that, he could have lived in shame. Another person, a lady by the name of Rahab, she's known as Rahab the harlot. But if you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ over in Matthew, guess whose name shows up there? Rahab the harlot. Shows up right there in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The guy that we're gonna look at today, if you were to go into scripture and you figure out who gets the most ink in scripture, the number one person would be Jesus, right? The number two person would be David. I just shared you a little bit about his story. The number three person would be Moses. Moses. And that's the guy I want us to look at because Moses felt shame from the beginning. So Moses was born in the land of Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh had all of the young male boys killed. And his mom, Moses' mom, because she didn't want him to be killed, she wrapped him up in this little basket, put him in the river, and he floated, and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. So he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. He was raised as an Egyptian, highly educated, favored by Pharaoh as a Hebrew living in the house of an Egyptian Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter two, verse 10, it says, when the child grew older, She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she had said, I drew him out of the water. And so here's Moses being brought up in these conditions, but he always within his spirit, he always felt pulled toward his people, the Hebrews who were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And so he's always feeling that he's he's under you know, living in the house of Pharaoh, he's got all this favor that he's getting. He's getting highly educated. Some even believe that he might even become the next Pharaoh. And he, but he's also living in this, this draw toward his people, the Hebrews, who were living in conditions that he probably felt a little bit of guilt about. Here I am, I've got all the freedom, I've got all this power, I've got all this money, I've got anything I want, and my people are living in slavery. And not just any slavery, they were living in, in a lot of oppressive slavery. And one day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked upon their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So here's here's Moses going out and he sees his people and he sees the conditions that they're living in. And I'm sure with that, he felt a little bit of guilt going, how could I live so good, but yet they live so poorly? And while he was looking at this and going through all of of this in his mind, he sees an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew people. And while he sees that going on, it says he looked this way and he looked that, meaning he'd looked around to see if anybody was watching and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So one of his Hebrew brothers is getting beat. He goes over and he kills this Egyptian when he thinks no one is watching, 
hides him in the sand, has his body just, you know, he digs it out, just like you would down at the beach in the sand. You just dig it out, and you, he put the body down in there and covered it up. And I don't know if it was just because of the desert sand and the wind that was blowing. All of a sudden, maybe those toes started sticking up, and somebody saw it or somebody witnessed it, this act. But after he looked around, he struck down, he committed this sin against the Hebrew, against the Egyptian by killing him. And listen, what happened, he started trying to hide him in the sand, which is what you and I do with our sin. We do something, we try to cover it up. We don't want other people to know about it. And we think God doesn't know about it because it's, it's shameful. It's shameful. We shouldn't have said that. We shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have committed that act. And we live with this shame. We try to cover it up, just like Moses tried to cover up his sin. He tried to cover up this murder. It says, when he went out the next day, Behold, there were two Hebrews. They were struggling together with one another. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And so he tries to become this fixer. He sees two brothers, Hebrews, that he loves and, you know, looks out and wants the best for them. He sees them fighting with one another. And he goes, why are you fighting with one another? Why are you fighting with your companion? And you know what their response was? They looked at him and they said this, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? In that moment, Moses knew that the shame and the guilt that he thought he had covered, it was out in the open. Somebody knew what he had done. And as a result, he was afraid. And he thought, surely this thing is known. This is what shame is. Surely what I thought was hidden what I thought I had covered up through fame or what I thought I had covered up through this lame game or by blaming, I thought I had it covered up. Other people knew about it. And that's what shame is. It's you and me having this all-consuming fear that other people know us and are judging us and we carry this shame with us. And you have your own things, I have my own things, and we think, surely everyone knows about, and you fill in the blank with whatever it is, whatever shame you are carrying. And as a result, we feel unusable and we are crippled by it. And our response is usually one of two things. You can either deny your shame. We talked about this a little bit last week. You deny that anything's ever taken place and you try to cover it up or you drown in your shame. You sit there and you mope and you, you just, you think, oh, poor me and, and, and how bad am I? And God could never use me. No one will ever love me. I'll never get out of this. And you just drown in your shame. But you know what? Moses' story was not over. Even though they knew what he had done, and even though they, they even heaped on some more shame, how dare you tell us what to do when you have done worse than us just quarreling? You are a murderer, Moses. And we play that game with one another too, right? We, we won't confront somebody about something. We won't talk to somebody about something because we feel shame. They're gonna point out something that we have done wrong. And so God meets Moses later on. He meets Moses at the burning bush. You know the story, you probably learned it when you were a kid. God met Moses at a burning bush and he calls him, he says, I'm gonna send you to my people. Here's what he says. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God, God was saying to Moses, I want to use you to go back to Pharaoh, the one that you ran from. I'm going to use you to go back to him, and you're going to bring my people out of Egypt. 
And as a result of that, Moses starts going down a long laundry list of reasons why God can never use him. And if you look at Exodus chapter three, verse one, he says, who am I? Who am I that you would ever want to use me? God, why would you use me? Don't you know what I have done? I am a murderer. Why would you use me? And then he says, listen, they're not gonna believe me. They're not gonna listen to my voice. Listen, I'm gonna go to Pharaoh and I'm gonna say, God sent me to get the people out of Egypt. Pharaoh's not gonna listen to me. People aren't gonna listen to my voice. I'm sure back over there in, in Egypt where all the Hebrews are, word's gotten around about me. People know who I am. People know what I've done. People know that I'm a murderer and now they're gonna trust me to deliver them out? No, they're not gonna believe me. They're gonna listen to my voice. And, and besides that, if I go up to try to talk to, to Pharaoh, I'm gonna be so nervous. I'm not gonna be an eloquent speaker. And listen, I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. Meaning I stammer, I stutter, I'm hard to understand. I talk too fast. All of these things he's rehearsing in his mind, he's just saying them out there before God. And as a result, God, why don't you do this? Why don't you just send someone else? I mean, really, you can't use me. I'm unusable. I'm damaged goods. I'm scarred. No one wants me. No one wants to listen to me. And you and I have some of these same things, if not all of them that we will use as excuse after excuse after excuse. And it all stems from some level of shame that we're carrying around. I've told y'all before, I went to a very, very small Christian school in North Louisiana. That's where I graduated from high school. In our graduating class, there was three people, me, Tracy, and one other person. That was it. Our whole school, I think, had 25 to 30 people in it, you know, depending on what year it was. But Tracy's dad was the principal who was also the, he was also the pastor of the church where the school was. And what he wanted was the boys to, to, to man up a little bit. And so occasionally he would ask us to do a morning devotion. And let me just tell you, every time my morning came around, I was scared out of my mind. I didn't wanna talk in front of, and everyone in the room was my friend. You know, 20 of them, whatever, they knew me. They were friends, but I was so scared to talk in front of them. I remember the first time I ever preached. The first time I ever preached a message was in a nursing home. In a nursing home, in front of about 25 people that couldn't hear me anyway, okay? I asked my dad, I said, Dad, what do I preach? And my dad said, well, you'll never go wrong with the gospel. So my first message was the Roman road of salvation in front of 80-year-olds, and I was scared out of my mind. It lasted all of about seven minutes, probably, maybe. And, 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 and I got to Bible college, and one of the classes we had was preaching workshop, and you had to preach in front of your peers. I wanted to call in sick every single day that it was my turn to preach. I was scared out of my mind, and I wanted all these excuses of why God would never use me to speak. And you do the same thing. Why God? What is your level of excuses for God not using you? What are they? And you just start filling the blank. Who am I? Who am I, God, that you would use me? And you start making your excuses. What shameful past, what things that you've done that, that Satan wants to use as your, your reason. But as a result, Moses lays all of these things out. In some ways, he's becoming very vulnerable before God. He's, he's exposing his heart to God. And vulnerability can lead to usability. When you're honest about who you are, God says, I already knew that about you. 
You're not surprising me by anything. You're not surprising me by confessing your sin. I already knew it. I just needed you to say it. You're not not telling me anything about your insecurities and about the shame. I already knew all of those things about you. I just need you to get vulnerable with me because God wants to use you. And God used Moses ultimately to deliver the Hebrews out of the land of Egypt. Took them across the Red Sea, dry ground, all out, all out into the wilderness. They're hanging around. They're hanging out in there. And all of a sudden, God says, Moses, I need you to come up on the mountain. And when he goes up there, God says, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. I'm going to give you the rules, the law that I want the people down there to know. These are the things that I stand for and the things that I stand against. And he gives them to Moses. And Moses starts looking at him. He goes, wow, number one, that's a good one, God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's a good one, and you should put that in there. Number two, thou, shouldn't have, you, thou shalt have no other, you shouldn't have any graven images, bow down before any graven image. That's a good one too, God. I like that one. Matter of fact, God already knew that down at the bottom of the mountain they were building a golden calf. Number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Yeah, I heard some cuss words down there. They need to hear this one. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What do you mean by that? I'll tell you more about that later. And then he gets down there and he starts reading and he gets to number six. You shall not murder. God, you want me to take this message down there to those people. You want me to go down there and say, here's God's commands. And number six, you shall not murder. God, do you know what I, you remember what I did? Do you remember what I did back there to that Hebrew, or to that Egyptian? I am a murderer. I understand, Moses. I want you to take this down there anyway. And listen, you know, number nine, God, you shouldn't bear false witness. I've lied a lot about my past. I've tried to cover it up. And listen, although Moses had a lot of shame, he didn't stay in his shame. He delivered that message. And when he got down there, he saw what the people were doing. He breaks God's handwritten Ten Commandments. The, the, the handwritten words that God had written on these stone tablets, he breaks them and has to go back up there and get some more. But God still used Moses in spite of the fact that he had broken commandment number six and still used him to deliver that message to the, to the, to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, and to you and me. And you have a choice. I have a choice. When it comes to our shame, we can either wallow in it or come out of it and be used by God. So my question to you, will you wallow in your shame? Are you gonna sit there and just wallow in this cesspool of shame and God is saying, come out of it, I want to use you. I know about your past. I have forgiven you of your past and I wanna deliver you from the effects of your past or from your past and I want to use your story to tell my story. But yet we wallow in our shame and say, God, you can never, ever, ever use me. If you jump ahead to the New Testament, there's a story in, the, in John, in John's gospel, in John chapter five, there's a pool there called the Pool of Bethesda. And real briefly, I just wanna tell you that at this pool in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, this pool, in Aramaic, they call it Bethesda, which has five roof, roofs colonnades. This, this pool, they have excavated it. You can, to this day, go there and you can see the pools of Shalom. I'm sorry, the, the pools of Bethesda. And they're excavating more and more and more about with these pools of Bethesda. We'll see them and when we go over there and take a group in a few weeks. And in them, it says, in these lay a multitude of invalids. They're the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. They're all laying around these pools. 
And there was one man who had been there as an invalid for 38 years. Now, what they believed is they believed that occasionally, there, there, there's lots of, lots of stories about this, that water would, would rush into these pools on occasion and they were high in mineral content. And when they would come, the waters would stir. They would start moving around. And people believed if you get in them, it had healing properties. There were some stories going around that an angel would actually come down and he was what stirred the water. And then when you would get in, the next person to get in, they would be healed of whatever, uh, whatever physical ailment they had. So when Jesus saw him laying there or lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, Jesus looked at him and he said, do you want to be healed? Now, you and I would look at that and go, certainly he would. But if you read in the context of this and maybe the tone that Jesus is coming, coming at him with, he's looking at him and go, listen, you've been here for 38 years. You've been here for 38 years. That, that water has stirred many, many, hundreds and hundreds of times. And you're telling me you've never gotten into that water? I question whether or not you really wanna be healed or not. That's the tone in which Jesus is asking this question. Do you want to be healed? Because he knew he had been there for a long time. And here's what the sick man said. He said, oh, sir, I, I, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going so there's, you need somebody to put you in, but while you're going, another steps down before you. So there's, there's this thing. So in my mind, I'm reading this story and looking at the tone in which Jesus asked that question, do you really wanna be healed? And I'm thinking, if he really wanted to be healed, don't you think he would like been right next to the pool and as soon as the water started stirring, he could at least just flop over in there and be the next one. 38 years, come on. Your chances are good that you're gonna be one of the ones in there first. I mean, after all, there has to be some slow days at the pool of Bethesda, right? But Jesus looks at him and go, listen, had you rather lay here and wallow in your paralyzed state, your unusable state, or do you really, 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 really want to be healed? When it comes to our shame, when it comes to the things that we're carrying around, listen, Jesus wants to heal you He's already made a way. You and I just have to take the step. We have, to, we have to take the step forward and leave the shame of our past exactly where God has left it, in our past. It's behind us. Jesus looks at me, he says, you get up, you take up your bed and walk. If you really wanna get out of this state, I want you to get up, take up your bed and you walk out of here. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And what I would just say to you today, get up out of your crippling shame and walk into the freedom and the healing that God wants for you. The usability that God wants for you. Your next relationship or the relationship you're in now does not have to be marked by the shame of your past relationships. You don't have to be marked by that. That is in the past. Jesus died for that. Remember the cross is the instrument of shame. He took your shame, my shame upon himself so that we wouldn't have to carry it around. Stop blaming others. Be vulnerable, take responsibility. Don't blame your circumstances that you're in. Stop doing that. 
Stop moping around in your shame and get up out of it and walk into the freedom with the confidence knowing that Jesus came to deliver you from the shame of your past. And I know sometimes it's easier said than done, but you gotta get up and you gotta take up your bed. You gotta take up your bed and you gotta walk out of the shame. Because if you look over in Hebrews, Here's what he said, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Get up and walk, but God, don't you remember about the Egyptian? No, I don't remember that because I don't remember your lawless deeds any longer. I don't hold them against you any longer. They are under the blood of Jesus Christ. So why are you holding it against yourself? God is not holding your past against you. So stop holding your past against yourself and walk in the freedom that can only come through Jesus Christ. We're about to sing a song, it's called Mercy. The very first opening line, I am living proof of what the mercy of God can do. No matter what your past is, you can be living proof of what the mercy of God can do. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, that would be the first step to receive his forgiveness that he offered by going to the cross for your sins. Meet me, Tom, one of the deacons down front. We would love to pray with you. Meet us back in the guest VIP room. But today would be a day, great day to get up, take up your bed, Take up your, your, the shame that you're wallowing in. Take it up and walk out of it today. Let's all stand together. Father, we are so thankful for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And God, even though we can say that, oftentimes it's hard for us to live that. And I know there are people in this room, people watching online that are wallowing in shame and they're crippled by it making excuse after excuse after excuse. Today, God, I pray that you'll give them the confidence in you knowing that you've forgiven them and you hold their sins against them no longer. And help us to walk in the freedom that you have designed and made a way for us to walk in. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.